You're listening to TIP. I do a lot of interviews at the summit events. I really love interviewing people. And I did an interview with Kobe Bryant and I was asking him a whole slew of questions. So I asked him just about what his experience with pressure was like, you know, when he's down, you know, three games to two or down in certain games. And I guess like anyone else, I had my own view on pressure. In this week's episode, I talk with Elliot Biznow about how he started his first business in college, why you shouldn't just keep it real, you should keep it surreal, how he pioneered an entirely new type of business conference, why he went all in on an investment that he had no idea if it'd work or not, pieces of advice that have changed his life, how you can buy a mountain, and that's how this part of the conversation relates to a real estate investing podcast, and we talk about a bunch more. Elliot Biznow is a co-founder of Summit Group, whose family of organizations include Powder Mountain, Summit Series, Summit Junto, and Summit Impact. Biznow is a startup founder, having made almost 50 early stage investments, including Uber, Coinbase, Warby Parker, and Allbirds. At just 20 years old, Biznow started Biznow Media with his dad, Mark, out of his college dorm room. Over the next decade, they grew the business into the largest commercial real estate media company in the world, and it was acquired in 2016 by Wix Group. I really had a lot of fun with this episode. A lot of the episodes here on the show are tactical, and we get into the nitty-gritty of investing concepts. We don't really have many episodes where we talk more about stories and theory like we did in this one. We do talk about some tactical things in this episode, but it's fascinating to learn about the story and the conversations that have happened by happenstance that changed Elliot's life and how he was part of buying a mountain. I hope you guys enjoy it just as much as I did. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Elliot Bisnow. Elliot, welcome to the show. All right, Robert. Let's do it. At the time, you had a small company that was successful and had put together a successful business conference in the nation's capital. But around that time, someone you spoke with asked you if you keep it real. And of course, you said, yeah, you did. Rather than just continuing on, he said everyone keeps it real. You need to keep it surreal. How did that conversation change your perspective on your business? And how did that lead to you betting it all on a massive down payment for a cruise ship? This is definitely true. At a chance dinner, someone I was talking to, I was asking them questions about themselves and their background, and they were asking all about what I was doing. And at the time, you know, our business summit was putting on small events. And they literally said to me right at the beginning of our conversation, they said, Do you keep it real? And I looked at them like, who is this person asking me if I keep it real? Of course I keep it real, I said back. And he said, well, that's a problem because everybody keeps it real. You need to keep it surreal. And, you know, it was a very in your face thing to say. You know, he said it with this, you know, a good sense of humor. But I think the takeaway was for me, it's such a crowded world in whatever you do. It's such a busy world. It's so hard to get people's attention. And it's similar to the quote doing something well, it's just that's not good enough. right? And I think with our events, like putting on good events, putting on events that are people like... I mean, the main problem is people will come and say, I had a good time and they won't then 
tell all their friends about it. And if you want to have a product that's successful, it needs to have virality, right? They need to come back and say, Robert, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to buy this book. You have to watch this new show on Netflix. You have to go to this event. And I think coming out of that conversation, I realized whatever business we're in, and we were in the event business, like our events need to be, they need to push the boundaries. They need to be over the top. They need to be inspiring. And then, you know, first and foremost, they need to be different than any other events. And how did that lead to the cruise ship? So we've been putting on events that started from 19 people to 60 to 120. And we were always trying to make the events creative, innovative. We design, we would design cool experience in the hotel lobbies. We have great dinners we put on or exciting you know, musical acts that we would book. We'd have great speakers. But you know, at the end of the day, we we're still putting something on in a hotel in a city. And I think we had seen some kind of music, mini music festivals at sea, like one of your favorite bands on a cruise ship. And we had this idea, what if we took over a cruise ship, we did all the menus and the food, Instead of you know the typical cheesy music that you might find on a big ship, we programmed all the soundtracks. Imagine we reprogrammed all the content. So it was the speakers that we booked, the DJs, the bands that we booked, and then we filled the ship with the Summit community. The Summit community is an entrepreneurial group of people, people who are enterprising, starting businesses, nonprofits. So we thought that is surreal. Whether some people don't want to come doesn't matter. But this is boundary pushing, like doing a traditional business event on a ship. Like we had never heard of anyone doing that. And I think we've often thought the most important thing is just being different. And so we reflected back, keep it surreal. Okay, a ship in the middle of the ocean for a business conference, that feels surreal. And it wasn't just a small bet. You didn't just take ten, twenty thousand dollars that you guys had in the business account and put it as a down payment on this cruise ship. You had to kind of really bet everything and put over a million dollars into that down payment to secure the cruise ship. How did you think about making such a big bet on something that you weren't sure if it was going to work? I mean, the events business can be a really challenging business. Like if you look at farming, for example, like a farmer, it's really unfortunate because they have to spend all the money getting their fields ready, buying seeds hiring workers to tend to the fields. This all starts in the winter and then the spring, and they only sell their produce in the summertime. So they have to front all the costs. And events are the same. Like You have to have this whole team planning out the events. You have to book out venues and make deposits, often a year ahead of time. You're booking speakers because you can't sell tickets without seeing the lineup and seeing the programming. Similar to that farming analogy, Building an event, you have to front all this money up ahead of time. And it's really difficult. It's like it's the opposite of some businesses that collect the money up front. Like you pay them a fee up front and then they send you the product after or the 12 month subscription after for your Netflix subscription. Like you pay them up front, they have upfront costs. But for the most part, like events are a challenging business model. It's one thing to do it at a hotel and you can have attrition clauses where, you know, if you can't sell all the, you could book, you know, fewer rooms, then you could add more hotels later. You can get out of your hotel contracts. But with a cruise ship, it was just cut in stone. It was like a year ahead of time, you owe this much money and the deposit was like a million dollars. And there just, there was no easy way to do it. It's not like we could book one small hotel if we sell the first hundred tickets. We could book another hotel if we sell the next 200 tickets. We could book another hotel. It's just, if you want to book a cruise ship, we had to basically predict forward how many people were going to come and we had to put all this money down. And so what would happen is that our company, after we do a successful event, 
we would have money in the bank to then continue paying the salaries of our team and to you know bankroll the next event. We basically had to take all the company savings and push the chips on the table to make the down payment to book this cruise ship. And so it was a you know, million bucks. It was all the company's money. It was all the Summit co-founders' money. We put all the chips on the table and we booked this cruise ship. What was the outcome? Well, as soon as we started telling people about it, it was pretty universally loved from the start. Like people really, really loved the idea of Summit at Sea. I think any event that you do is going to preclude certain people from coming. If it's too far away, if it's too much of a party vibe, if it's too much of a boring business vibe at a conference center, certain people won't go. If it's in Las Vegas, certain people really want to go and certain people will never go. And so I think you know, depending on what event you do, there's just certain people, they have young children, and maybe they could pop out to a city for a couple of days for an event, but they can't go off the grid for 3 days with no phone contact. So it's kind of each event self-selects a group of people who are going to kind of be the target demographic of the people who are going to really love this. And I think within that target demographic, we were basically met by almost everyone with, wow, that is a really audacious big idea. I mean, it definitely got a lot of attention. It, it garnered a lot of press. It garnered a lot of people talking about it. Even the people who didn't want to go, they said, like, I'm not going, but that is wild. You know, you guys should go. I think what it did was it, it cut through all the noise and the people definitely started talking about it. And then almost like layers of a cake, we then realized, well, we need to book you know, great musicians. We need to book a great speaker. And so when you layer on great speakers, great musicians, suddenly you're going to a ship in the middle of the ocean with this great content and this great music. And then the event, it ended up being a big success. But putting an event on at sea is off the charts, complicated and very challenging. You were pushing the boundaries with business conferences, business meetups, basically. And what you were doing was kind of never really been done before. If I'm correct, it was around like 2011 to 2013, sometime in that time frame. If you fast forward about five years, there was another festival, but it wasn't business related. It was just a music festival that was trying to push the boundaries as well. And that was the Fire Festival. Obviously, it had a very different outcome than what you guys did. I'm curious, as a, an event producer and one that has kind of pushed the boundaries yourself, what do you think of kind of the fiasco that was the Fire Festival and how that all unraveled? Well, when I did the first summit event and I took this major risk that we have talked about for many years, my major risk I took was bringing 19 people to a rented house in Utah near the Alta Ski Resort. So the worst thing that could have happened would be that the people would just, I guess, say like I hadn't paid for the house, like they would have just gone to a hotel and then gone skiing. Like there was no bad outcome. The next event was 60 people in Mexico. It's like, I guess I could have been in a worst case scenario if I completely flubbed everything up. I could have stranded 20 people in Utah or 60 people at a beach resort in Mexico. And then they would have gotten their own accommodations. Maybe I would have lost tens of thousands of dollars. I think. By the time we'd been producing events for a half a decade, we were doing 1,500-person events. And by the way, in cities in Los Angeles or on a cruise ship even, as audacious as it sounds, with infrastructure, with bathrooms, showers, kitchens, bedrooms, stages, electricity, the fire festival. So when you put this in context, right? I mean, by the time we did Summit at Sea, we had dozens of people on the team. I mean, the Fire Festival, and I think their first event it was 10,000 people on an island 
with no infrastructure and no power and no toilets and no showers and no bedrooms. It was their first event. Like our first event, I spent like half a year planning for 19 people, and then half a year for 60 people, and then half a year for 120 people, and then half a year for 250 people. And even after six years, we never made it past a few thousand. And here they were on event number one going for, again, I don't know the exact numbers, whether it's 5,000 or 10,000, some number many times what we've still ever done with no infrastructure, right? It's not like they tried to pull it off in Los Angeles or in Miami or in Las Vegas. And there was no infrastructure. It was just on this island. There was no, as I understand, there's no power. They had to truck in generators. There's no water. I think it's not even in the same league of complexity. It'd be like me organizing a pickup basketball game with 10 people I don't know and you trying to start the next NBA. Like it's like we're both doing events, but it was so off the rails what they tried to do that I, it's shocking that anyone who's ever done events wouldn't say from the start there's a 0% chance that you can do this. In your book, Make No Small Plans, you have a few (laughs) takeaways that I want to chat about today. And it kind of goes to what we were just talking about. And the first one is that no idea should go unspoken. Talk to us about some of the ideas that you've had that others might have thought were crazy, just like maybe the fire festival or even doing the cruise ship, but taught you that your ideas should still always be spoken, even if they are crazy. Well, if you have a safe environment with very collaborative people, which is the first step, then that environment embraces lots of ideas and creates an open forum around them. So we've all been around people where anytime you tell them an idea, they ridicule you and they push you down. So when you're in that open collaborative environment, ideas are really, really valuable. And really good ideas are hard to come by. I mean, execution is is even more important, but to create an environment where people can just put out their ideas. Most ideas, like from my experience at companies, don't just come from the founders or the CEO who go off and, you know, to their room and read a book or bring a piece of paper and come out two days later with some big idea. I think like big ideas tend to rise through the companies. And like if you literally look at all the best companies, how did, I don't know, from how did Gmail get invented to you just look at all the different products and services at our favorite companies. They tend to rise through the ranks, and these companies foster this culture where anyone on the team can bring ideas. And then everyone's very, very receptive to the culture of ideas being brought forward. And it's so easy to shut down an idea, right? Like at any time, if it's not a good idea, you can just say, We'll pass. We're not going to do that. And so we've certainly fostered that for a long time. And we've always encouraged our friends, our team members, Please bring us ideas. You know, it could be ideas for the next event, ideas for speakers, as out of the box as they could be, speakers that might infuriate some of the attendees, speakers that don't normally speak at events, ideas for music, ideas for, you know, it could be like our events, for example, ended up being, you know, mini music, content, and arts festivals. And at one point, I think someone told us, you know, you should just program your event for 72 straight hours. Like even if nobody comes to the 5 a.m. session, just do it. You know, so we would get a lot of out there ideas like that. You know, here's these wild foods you could serve. Here's how that has absolutely served us well. It's like, and I don't really see any downside to having a culture of just encouraging people to bring creative ideas to the table. As part of your sales pitch for you and your dad's commercial real estate media company, you used a sales approach that was probably a little bit kind of out there. I think that other people might not have used or, or traditional salespeople wouldn't have used. 
And you would joke with your prospects that your global office was at 1601 Pennsylvania Ave, which is directly across from the White House. (laughs) How did you use creative sales tactics like this in that business and then also businesses you've built since then? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. This one time I went to one of my early pitch meetings wearing a suit and tie because when I left college after a couple of years, so I really thought when I was 21, like I have to fit in or I'm not going to be accepted. So I went to this meeting with this suit and tie to try to sell someone some ads. And we got to the meeting and there's this guy had been in the business for a long time, must have been 50 years old, 60 years old. When we sat down at this table, it was at the Palm restaurant. He was like, take off your jacket. Okay. I like, took off my blazer. He's like, take off your tie. I'm like, okay. He's like, unbutton the top button. 
I'm like, okay. He's like, and the next one? I'm like, okay. He's like, roll up both your sleeves. I'm like, okay. He's like, be yourself. Let's have a beer and some cheesy fries and let's just get to know each other. And then at the very end, you can just tell me whatever you want to sell me and I'll just say no, or I'll tell you, here's the little tweaks we'll do to it. But let's just not small talk and BS each other. Like You seem great. You're an entrepreneur. You're building this cool startup with your dad, BizNow. So let's just be friends. And then at the end, you can just do your pitch in 5 or 10 minutes. We had this like unbelievable meeting for an hour. He's like, all right, what do you want to sell me? I'm like, I want to do this package. He's like, how about we do it like this and this? I'm like, well, how about this? He's like, all right, yeah, with that tweak. I'm like, done, shake hands, do this deal. And I think you know, I left that meeting realizing the most important thing is just being yourself. Like really, really being yourself with people, like not trying to pretend I was someone else. So for how I did it, I stopped wearing suits and ties. I stopped pretending I was 30 years old. Like people used to say, like, oh, where'd you go to college? And I would literally say, Oh, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And after this meeting, I would say, I went to University of Wisconsin in Madison, but after two years, I decided to leave college. I can't believe it. I'm a dropout. But it was because I had this entrepreneurial bug in me. And I, I love college and I got so much out of it. But it was my I went to college to get a career and now I was building my own career. So I left early to build my dream. Like I just told them the truth instead of pretending. Now I was never lying, but I would pretend I I would never want them to know I dropped out. And as soon as I started being authentic, like people really started bonding with me. And I think, you know, I would also, you know, do things that would catch attention. So we were had to get some office space and there was this really crappy co-working space next to the White House. And the address was literally 1601 Pennsylvania Avenue. And you know what? The space wasn't that bad. It was like a Regis office space. But the interior space was really bad. But I don't know. I just thought it would be so funny. Here I am, this college dropout. And I could literally tell people on the phone, yeah, I'm working next to the White House. I don't know. It's just, I think part of my personality that came out over the years was, you know, I've always enjoyed being eccentric. I've enjoyed being myself. And so there was this element of eccentricity. I cut a deal once, Robert, with a, like I was selling ads to different transportation companies. And there's this limo company that wanted to buy ads and they couldn't afford our budget. So I just traded them ads for limo hours. So I would like literally end up taking this limo to all my sales meetings. I had this office, it's interior office at 1601 Pennsylvania Avenue. I was wearing, you know, a t-shirt and a tennis shoes to all the meetings. And I think when I look back, I think what actually really resonated was I was at the forefront of this new entrepreneurial generation, right? Where where today anyone can be an entrepreneur, right? Like just anything you want to build there's a platform to build it on, right? Whatever you want to start. And back then, this is in you know, 2008, 2009, there just weren't a lot of entrepreneurs. So for me, as I was trying to break into this industry, rather than pretend I was older and already successful, I just told people, I'm not successful. I left college to try to build my dream. By the way, see that limo out the window? That's mine. Not because I paid for it, because I trade some ads for it. And yeah, I got an office. This, you know, I needed an office and so I thought, you know, I'll be in the heart of the action. I'll take an interior desk next to the White House. And I think people just they really resonated with like the entrepreneurial spirit. And I ended up just building really good friendships with all the people I was prospecting or trying to sell to. And I really took that just and by saying I really took this guy's advice from there on out. Like I stopped trying to sell to people. I would even say to them, it's like, look, you you know I'm calling because I think our platform is great for you to advertise in, but also I just love meeting people. So I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to get to know you. 
you can take 10 minutes and hear what I have to pitch. If you don't want it, just say no and I'll move on. But we can still be friends and we can connect. So I learned a lot from that one first meeting. Have you kept up with that kind of unconventional approach to this day throughout all your businesses? Yes, I'm off the rails. One of the other things I guess some people would consider is maybe not off the rails, but crazy, similar to the kind of the cruise ship pioneering that you did is that you purchased a mountain and one of America's largest ski resorts. How did the idea for buying such a massive piece of real estate come about? And how did you actually make that happen? Let me back up. When I say off the rails, I mean, there's a balance between operating in an incredibly professional and structured manner. And then also within that, being yourself and being your best self. Right? Like you can be a very successful business person. And I don't know, like the CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon's a DJ at night. Literally, I just read an article about it. I mean, that doesn't mean he's any less professional by even 1% when it comes to work. I mean, I had a fifth grade teacher who said there's a time for work and a time for play. I don't know why it always stuck with me. I mean, so I'd like to think I'm like that. We're in the work hours. I'm. I think I operate at an extremely high level of when it comes to process, discipline, structure. But then I also understand that you can have a fun working environment. You can have fun after hours. You know, it's okay to not always be checking your phone. It's okay to enjoy the weekend. So, what happened with Powder Mountain? There's really great precedent for how towns or neighborhoods or communities get built. If you look back over the last few hundred years, just in America. You can look at all these neighborhoods that we've all been to, whether it's Soho or the Meatpacking District, whether it's neighborhoods across Washington, D.C., it could be Portland, it could be Austin, Texas, it could be all the neighborhoods around Miami, Florida, it could be Venice Beach. I mean, there's unlimited examples. And all of these neighborhoods underwent really dynamic transitions because either a person or a small group of people led the development of those areas. And you can literally just look up any area. And you can read all about the people who led the development of that area. And there's great precedent for ski towns. You know, what happened? How did these towns get built? What's the history behind, you know, Tahoe or Jackson Hole or Aspen or Vail? By chance, in 2011, I met an attendee of a summit event, a venture capitalist who, like, we just went out for a coffee. So I met him over a coffee and he told me about Powder Mountain Ski Resort and that it was for sale. And he told me, you know, I think we have a chance to try and buy this ski resort. And he was the one who told me about the historical precedence of how people and groups have led the development of really interesting towns and places. And his pitch was pretty simple for the last half decade summit, which is the company I'd started, was putting on events. We were gathering people. And his pitch was, you know, he was a financier, he had some development experience, he would help. You know, finance the acquisition. He would help lead the development, and we would help build community because you really can't build place without community. And so, in 2011, started basically this what's now more than 10 year journey of trying at first to buy Powder Mountain Ski Resort, put together a really thoughtful plan for how to preserve the amazing valley that it's in, how to preserve the classic character and the history of the ski resort, how to do like a tactful. Interesting, creative, modern development with small homes and you know, kind of a heritage, modern, you know, architectural aesthetic, and really try to reimagine the American mountain town. And yeah, so again, in 2011, began this journey that started with trying to buy it all the way up to we bought it in Powder Mountain in 2013, and then you know, the last eight plus years, 
managing or stewarding Powder Mountain, if you will, which is you know a ski resort with four restaurants, about nine various you know chairlifts or lifts, two hundred fifty-ish team members who work at the ski resort throughout the year, four Powder Mountain restaurants, thirty miles of mountain biking trails. So it's a really magical place, and I spent you know about the last ten plus years working on it. Did your experience with your commercial real estate media company help at all with buying a mountain? Or did you kind of rely on the VC guy for kind of the financial and real estate experience? And you were really just part of the community building. One of the funny things that happened is one of my Summit co-founders out of college, he had worked at a land brokerage firm, but the recession hit of 2008. So he was, you know, he worked commission only job in real estate brokerage trying to move big land parcels. And he, you know, he spent a couple of years just doing that without any success because we were in the heart of this terrible recession. And when we actually heard about Powder Mountain a few years later, and we needed to figure out how to actually acquire 10,000 acres in a ski resort, he actually knew exactly what the path was to follow and he knew who to engage. But then I think at a high level, no. My background did not help. I mean, I had some contacts from the real estate days, but ultimately we were very entrepreneurial. And so between Greg, who had told me about the mountain, and my other partners, like we were just constantly studying. We were bringing people out. We were reaching out to other communities or resorts or resort developers that we'd read about or heard about. We were asking for intros. And so most of it was us aggressively learning everything. Just the way my brain works is I love to research businesses, see how they work. If I go to a restaurant, I wonder what their margins are. Or if I go to anything, really, I always like to see how things work. And so I got into snowboarding a couple of years ago, and I was just curious a little bit more about... And I'm a real estate investor myself. So I was curious kind of how ski resorts and mountains work from a real estate and business perspective. And so I looked into it a little bit, and I saw that some of our local towns... The ski resort operators lease the land from the government rather than actually owning the land. So were you guys doing that similar model? Were you leasing the land and then running the business of the ski resort? Or did you buy the mountain itself and the business? We bought all privately owned land, which is extremely rare. And you're right that almost all the ski resorts in America are... I don't know if almost all, some big percentage are the resort leasing the land from the US Forest Service. In fact, at one point, I think until a couple of years ago, the US Forest Service had not approved any new ski resorts for development in like 20 years. The ski resort industry is really interesting. There's about 400 resorts in the United States, and they range from like little mom and pops with a couple of small chairlifts to like big Disney World esque resorts like Vail that have 35,000 people a day, just massive revenues in EBITDA. And most of the ski industry today, like so many other industries, the ski industry is basically owned by three companies. And right, just in the same way, eight food companies own almost all the food brands, right? Or there's just a handful of airlines, right? Or a handful of cell phone companies, right? Like it's all been consolidated. Ski resorts, this has happened over the last few decades and it really accelerated the last decade. But you know, first was like the small mom and pops being bought by like local private equity firms. And then that then those private equity firms being bought. But basically if you want to ski at a resort, now, for the most part, you're going to be skiing under one of three companies. Like, oh, you're from Los Angeles, you want to go to Mammoth? Oh, you want to go to Park City Resort? Oh, you want to go to Vail? Oh, you want to go to Tahoe? Oh, you want to go to East Coast Resorts? So all these resorts are owned by either Vail Resorts, which is public, or Aspen Skiing Company and the private equity firm KSL and one other group. 
And then there's these competing ski passes, like uh, all you can eat for skiing, where basically you get this season pass that gives you access to like all these resorts, basically, right? Like an Epic Pass or an Icon Pass. Interestingly, these groups are pretty much, as I understand it, like they're not really in the real estate business. They sell a lot of these season passes, like a billion dollars worth. There's some massive number. And then they're totally vertically integrated, right? They own the ski school and the shops and the restaurants and the retail. And then, you know, whether it's a bad snow year on one part of the country or in one state, it doesn't matter because the other side has a good snow year. And then they also have just really impressive, pretty mind blowing summer programming and now mountain biking. You know, the whole skier industry has really been consolidated. For example, in Utah, where Powder Mountain is, Powder Mountain is the only one of eight resorts in Utah that's not on one of the big passes. So in Utah, you know, you have Alta, Snowbird, Solitude, Brighton, Deer Valley, the Canyons, which is now Park City, Powder Mountain, and Snow Basin. And we're the only one that's, quote, independent. Does it hurt you to not be part of that pass? Well, it depends what your goals are. Because by being part of those passes, you're going to get a lot more skiers and a lot more traffic. So interestingly, like our business model is the opposite. So we're actually... We're one of the only resorts in the country that has a cap on the total number of season passes and total number of lift tickets that we'll sell a day. And certainly the lowest cap, right? Like we'll only sell a couple thousand season passes a year. And I think it's 2,000, I think it's 1,500 or 2,000 lift tickets a day. So we actually cap it. Like a Deer Valley has a cap, but I think it's like six or 8,000 lift tickets a day. And they're like 4,000 acres. You know, we're 10,000 acres with 2,000 tickets a day. So we're like 10 times less crowded than something like Deer Valley that's considered uncrowded. And then our business model, like our resort is profitable, but our business is focused on real estate. And I think it would not be good for the real estate business to pack your ski resort. But also it just it's not what we want to do. Like we all live in Eden, Utah, and we love it there. And we love this empty ski mountain. You know, we've won the most affordable ski resort in the country a bunch of times the last 10 years. I think we just have a different business model, which has led us to be able to have an uncrowded ski resort. When you mentioned these kind of caps, I thought for sure that you were going to be more expensive than some of the other ones. I mean, supply and demand, right? If you have a less supply, but you have a lot of demand, I would have figured that that would have pushed you up in prices and not allowed you to be affordable. But I know exactly what you're talking about from the busyness. I went to Vail and Breckenridge last year and it was just absolutely insane. The lines were crazy. You could barely go down the mountain. There were so many people around you. And then even in the Northeast on the East Coast where I live, like some of the mountains around here are just incredibly busy. And I mean, like you said, a lot of them are owned by Vail, which is a publicly traded company. So they need to do what's right, you know, quote unquote, in the eyes of shareholders and increase shareholder value. So they're not going to put caps on things like you guys do. Yeah. I mean, we have a small ownership group and our goal is to have the best experience. And we're just not obsessively focused on the bottom line. Like our number one focus is on having the best ski resort and the best experience for the community. And then I think just again, having an empty ski resort makes it a lot more attractive for folks to buy real estate. And then even with our real estate, like we've capped the like the largest homes you can build are you know, 5,500 square feet. Like a lot of these places, they don't even allow homes under 8,000 square feet. And like plenty of our homes, like my house on Powder Mountain's 1,600 square feet. You know, so a lot of the houses are like 2,000, 2,500 square feet. So I just think we're just going for a different, more boutique product and experience. 
And when you talk about these houses, are these houses that are being built on the mountain themselves or are they kind of in the city that's at the base? Powder Mountain is unique in that it has what's called an inverted topography, which exists a little bit in some of the upper Alpine mountain towns in Europe. You can actually drive to the top of Powder Mountain. And Powder Mountain is actually flat at the top. Like There's literally thousands of flat open acres at the top of Powder Mountain. It's pretty mind-blowing because you get up there and you see all the other mountains are all peaks. And then Powder Mountain, we of course have peaks, but there's just huge thousand acre flat areas. And so our project is actually all at about 8,700 square feet, all of the homes. And they're ski in, ski out from the top. Again, again, there's some examples like, you know, most of the Deer Valley Village is up and then Red Clouds even more up. So, you know, there's, I think, Red Mountain and Aspen. I mean, there are places where there's developments like Telluride has both the village at the bottom and the development at the top of the mountain. So, our projects at the top where you can have these like views for whatever it is, 100 miles. And, you know, just at the top, you can literally drive up, park at the top, and the houses are all kind of on these cascading plateaus. Our village is designed in a horseshoe shape. And then we have these really strict architectural guidelines. So there's no you know, fake French chateaus or 10,000 square foot mansions. It's all kind of this heritage modernism with like you know, local found materials. And basically, where we try to keep the houses close to each other when it comes to side by side, sometimes above and below each other, but then they'll have these beautiful views, right? And it's like this concept of you know, you want to be in the mountains, but you don't want to be in the middle of nowhere. You want to feel like you're in nature and you can look far out and ski and ski out or quickly get to the slopes, but you also want to have a neighbor you can walk to in, you know, 20 seconds. No, just we've studied tons of towns, visited towns, and we really had a very specific vision if we were going to reimagine kind of the American mountain town or community, what would it look like? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, 
savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I just pulled up some pictures of kind of that top area while we're talking, and it's pretty fascinating. I recommend anybody that's listening that's interested, Google Powder Mountain Top and just look at some of the pictures. It's pretty interesting. How does that work from a business perspective? Are you selling lots of land to these people and then they're essentially doing the construction themselves, obviously within your guidelines, or are you the developer? Like, How does that work? It works like any other resort development. So you essentially have a number of options, right? The easiest one to do for a variety of reasons is selling home sites. And there is some subset of people who've always wanted to design their dream home, right? I mean, for a lot of people, they definitely don't want to do that and they just want to buy a finished product, just like you would in a city. But there is some subset of people who really want to buy their own finished home. Then, like, let's say there's three high level three options. That's the first option. The second option would be either the company or with a third party, you can do a joint venture and you can develop spec homes. And so you can actually, you know, pre fund the homes, start building them, and either while they're under construction or after they're finished, you can sell those finished homes. And then the third option is kind of a hybrid of that where you sell a home site, but you've funded architectural designs that are engineered and are ready to go and are approved. And you sell a home site with architectural plans. Like we have a neighborhood called Horizon Run. And that neighborhood, when you buy a lot, it comes with you know, one of three options of the home that you want to build on the lot. And so, whereas, so in that option, it's kind of a middle, right? Like you don't have to spend a year designing and getting approved the plans. You buy a lot and you can pretty quickly break ground. I think most projects have those three options. And the dream is definitely to be where a project is just selling finished houses, but it's quite complicated and expensive to be financing, you know, spec homes. From a, I guess, a legal perspective or like zoning and permissions like that, who does that fall on? You mean at our company, who does it fall on? No, like in the sense, like if you, like in the city that I live in, right? If I wanted to build a structure, I have to go to the town and I have to get all these permits and all the zoning laws and all of that. So I'm curious, like, 
Is it go to you guys as the company or is there a government organization that has to deal with some of the zoning and things like that? It's just the exact same as buying a home site anywhere else. So, I mean, at the beginning when we bought Powder Mountain, it fell on us, the developers, right? Like we had to get the project entitled, you know, how much you can build. We had to get it zoned, what you can build. We had to put in roads, water, sewer, power. We pulled fiber optic internet. Right. So, you know, five and a half miles of roads, we had to build wells. And once all those things were complete and the project was zoned and entitled, then we are allowed to sell real estate. You know, until that's done, you can't actually sell real estate. Now, if you buy a home site on Powder Mountain, it's the same as, you know, buying a home site any other place. Yeah. You can just buy a home site from Powder Mountain and then you take title and then you go through the exact process as you would anywhere else. Like you hire an architect and a builder. They help you collectively to design the plans, to engineer them, and then you submit them to your local county for approval. Do you allow Airbnbs? We do allow Airbnbs. I mean, our one of our beliefs is that the best way to build a community or keep people in and out is by building a place that allows people to self-select into that place, right? And so what that means is, you know, I think with our small homes, our uncrowded skiing. You know, kind of the vision for the community. It's a place where you're excited to meet your neighbors. It's very focused on families. I think there's not nightclubs at the top of the mountain. I think the people who would rent Airbnbs are hopefully most of the time they're self selecting into wanting to go to Powder Mountain versus wanting to rent an Airbnb in Las Vegas or in Aspen or Vail. Like I think Powder Mountain, it's kind of a little bit of an adventuresome ski resort. Like, I think that Airbnb is a really good way for new people to come visit the mountain. And I think because we're so differentiated, people are self selecting that I think are really great people to have on the mountain. What happens if you decide you want to sell? Are you basically selling all of the land that is not occupied or owned by these private individuals? Yeah, something like that. Yes. The ski resort. I mean, real estate's a lot more complicated than a business because. In a business is like one business and there's one cap table. And I think in real estate, again, let's take any project, you might have a few hundred houses, you might have hotels, you might have sites that have been sold to other developers and they're going to put something up. You may have some sites that are used as collateral to a lender. Like in our case, when we bought Powder Mountain, even though it's 10,000 acres, the previous owner, they'd sold probably 50 sites over the years. To, you know, like there's, again, I don't know, there's 30, 40 ish houses on Powder Mountain before we arrived. There's some kind of boutique hotels that were there. So you end up as like the owner, you have all these different parcels and various holdings. And so I guess you could, like any project, could just sell everything that they owned, but it's not quite as simple as, you know, you have a company and you just sell your company. Similar to the guy that you talked to that changed your viewpoint when he told you to be surreal, not real. And then also the guy that told you to roll up your sleeves and just kind of be yourself. When you talked to Kobe Bryant, he changed your viewpoint on pressure and explained how it isn't real. How did this change your life and perspective on stress and pressure? I do a lot of interviews at the Summit events. I really love interviewing people. And I did an interview with Kobe Bryant and I was asking him a whole slew of questions. So I asked him just about what his experience with pressure was like, you know, when he's down as you know, three games to two or down in certain games and I guess like anyone else, I had my own view on pressure. My view is always, you know, pressure creates diamonds. Use the pressure to, you know, if, you, if there's pressure, you know it matters. So really, you know, step into it. 
And he just had a totally different view, which was that, like you said, pressure is just a figment of your imagination based on your ego is kind of how I took it, you know, and that you've essentially created your own pressure because something is so meaningful to you for a whole slew of reasons. You don't want to let people down. You want to get a bigger contract. You want to be viewed a certain way in people's eyes. And I just thought that was a unique perspective on pressure that it's all at the end of the day. The pressure is not real. It's your ego that has created it. A kind of similar concept that has it really kind of surprised me and opened my eyes a bit. I don't know if you've read this book, Elliot, but it's it's the Almanac of Naval. And basically in that book, he talks about a similar concept on how in a kind of not necessarily bad way, but basically nothing you do really ultimately matters in terms of like stress and pressure, because in maybe one, two generations, people will remember you. But once you get past three, four, five, six generations, nobody's going to remember you anyway. So even if you make a mistake, it doesn't really end up mattering in the long run. So when I read that, it was just this really eye-opening, I guess, experience or concept that I had never considered, but it sounds similar to what Kobe kind of believed. Warren Buffett has two famous quotes about reputation. One says, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. And the other says, lose money for the firm and I will be understanding. Lose a shred of reputation for the firm and I will be ruthless. I think it's safe to say that Buffett thinks reputation is important, and I know you do too, since you have an idea in your book that says reputations are earned by the drop and lost by the bucket. Why do you think reputation is so important? What role has reputation played in your business? Well, I agree with everything that you just said. You know, I think that building a great career, a great business takes time, like a lot of time, right? I mean, not just five years, 10 years, 20 years. And so the only way to do that is through long-term partnerships yeah, that include the people you work with, the, the people that you raise money from, your customers. And you know there is no more valuable asset than your reputation. And we've certainly given our best effort to build our own reputations around you know, the values that matter to us. And those values... You know, a reputation doesn't just have to be, oh, so-and-so has a lot of integrity. It could be so-and-so gives straight answers. So-and-so is generous when they part ways with people. So-and-so, they're great listeners and they take customer feedback right. And so I think we've thought a lot about what it means to have a reputation. And we've really tried, and, and certainly I've you know, personally tried very hard to be consistent you know, with all my values. So people you know, know who I am and they know what I stand for and how I operate. Your book also talks about this concept of becoming a favor economy millionaire. This isn't something I had ever heard before. So break down what this means and then explain how we can do it. There's lots of good reading about what it means to be wealthy. Right. And I think so many people at the beginning of their career, they just want to make a certain amount of money. Right. I want to make $100,000. I want to make a million dollars. I want to make $10 million, whatever that number is. But really, the most important question that should be asked, irrespective of money, is how do I want to live? Right. And it can be what are my values that I want to live by? But it's also how do I practically want to live? What place do I want to live in? How do I want to eat? Do I want to have friends over a few nights a week? Do I want to go out for meals? Do I want to go on a trip once a year? And I think as you start to establish the how you want to live, what you realize is that not all the things you want to do, you need to pay for. 
Like just because you want to go to an exotic place doesn't mean you have to pay for an expensive trip. Just because you want to have a private chef cook a meal for your family doesn't mean you have to pay for it. Just because you want to go on a boat in the lake in the town you live doesn't mean you have to buy a boat. And I think all this comes back to the uh, this concept of becoming a favorite economy millionaire where everyone has something to give, right? Like uh, you may think, Oh, I have this friend and he's a, you know, a chef in a restaurant. You never thought much of it, but by you giving to them and them giving to you, you can radically improve living experience, right? In the same way, you know, people listen to this might be real estate investors and, you know, their friends might have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to get that same real estate advice, like they have a gift to give. And so I think just living that kind of giving economy where you know, we always say the most selfish thing you can do is give unselfishly. So this certainly is not about going around and trying to take from all your friends their best asset or skill. It's not about taking their vacation house or jacking their boats on the weekends. But I think it's about you know just building relationships with people where everybody's giving. And so rather than everybody having to spend, everyone can begin to shift to a culture of giving. And you can live this kind of like favor economy, millionaire lifestyle, if you will. And going back to the early days of your career, you essentially did that with the limo company, right? I mean, they you had an asset that they wanted and they couldn't necessarily pay for it. So you you traded, you know, you you had these favors or gifts that you could go between. <laughs> exactly. One we do things similar on the podcast. People will reach out and, you know, sometimes I'll get a copy of their book and they'll come on the show or they'll have a service or a product and, you know, we'll kind of exchange. They'll come on the show and, you know, we'll get access to that product or service. So, I mean, I love that concept and idea myself personally. Yeah, thank you. Us too. I mean, you can really look around and just see all the examples of how you can give and you know how your how your friends can give. You know, you take your friend out on your in your little fishing boat for the weekend and maybe they're helping, you know, tutor your kid in math the next week, right? And so, I think it's just about all the gifts that we each have, but often we don't, you know, often we could share them a lot more. From my research, it seems that you've had a business partner in pretty much all of your businesses that you've had, at least your substantial businesses. But not everyone thinks partnerships are the way to go in business or real estate. What has been your experience with partnerships, both the ups and downs? Why do you think partnerships are important in business? Well, I think in order to have a business partner, you need to have a certain type of personality. So it's not necessarily right for everybody. But I I would like to think that for almost everybody, it's ideal to have a business partner. I mean, my favorite part of doing business has for the most part been my business partners. Right. I mean, I think they're important for a lot of reasons, but the quick reasons are business partners bring skill sets you don't have. And you don't really just want to hire skill sets you don't have, right? Because then these things that you don't really know, people are working for you and you really want peers to have skill sets that you don't have. So whether those business partners or those are board members, I think bringing that diverse set of skills is extremely important. You know, having a business partner really means a peer, right? It's someone that you know you can't fire. You always want the right mechanisms in place if a partnership needs to end. But ultimately, it's someone who can look you in the eye and they can say, "Robert, you know, I wanted to tell you this thing about X, Y, and Z, or I wanted to, you know, give you feedback here. Why don't we do this differently?" And so, and the final thing is, it's just way more fun to have great business partners who you build your dream with and who can help you build your dream. And I don't think I'd ever want to build a business personally without business partners. Throughout this episode, we've talked about some of my favorite takeaways or concepts from your book. What is the biggest thing that you want people to take away from your book after reading it? Well, the reason we wrote the book was we just wanted to tell people how we built what we did. Because two of the four of the Summit co-founders, including myself, didn't have college degrees. 
we were not exactly great students or potential business successes. And we figured out over the last decade how to build really great businesses and how to build community. And we really just wanted to share how we did it. And we've never done that before. So that was the main reason. We just had all these interesting tidbits and takeaways and creative ideas for each of the steps in our journey. And we, for a long time, really just wanted to share as much of that as possible. Other than just picking up your book, where is the best place for anybody that's listening to this episode that's interested in connecting with you? They can just reach out on Instagram or at Summit, S-U-M-M-I-T. Or you know, if they want to connect directly to me, they can just write in on the summit.co website and all the emails, all the messages for me just get forwarded to me. So that's probably the easiest thing. Awesome. I'll put a link to your book and all the different resources we've talked about throughout the episode and, and different ways to connect with you in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Elliot, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Cool. Thank you, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.